welcome to a very special Pilot TV podcast, the first special, in fact, where over the next hour or so we will be delving into the cesspool that was 2018 to discover that, while it may have been an annus horribilis in almost every other sense, it was actually a pretty good year for TV. I'm James Dyer, CAG of this particular Viper Squadron, that's Commander of the Air Group for those not au fait with Battlestar Galactica parlance. Joining me on the flight deck are two nuggets fresh from the ranks. Up first in the cockpit we have Lieutenant Boyd Hilton, call sign Starfucker. How are you, Boyd? <laughs> <laughs> you've, you, you've constructed that intro purely so you could do that Starfucker joke, I mean, you? I know you. I'd be lying if I said otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> Fine. I was like, why is he talking about Battlestar Galactica in this of all podcasts? Yeah, yeah. I find elaborate ways to insult you wherever possible. Thank you. Um, Joining us at this end-of-year sortie, we have another outstanding pilot for... um, Pilot. It's Captain Terry L. White, call sign Donkey Jacket. That's just a generic northern reference. Well, northern Ken Loach-esque kind of, you know... (laughs) Damp it, yeah. Yeah, because like Misery Porn seemed too first base, whereas I thought Donkey Jacket like was more subtle. I mean, Mm. yeah, it's it's layer upon layer upon layer of meaning and subtlety. (laughs) Just give me a minute while I I try and unpack it all. (laughs) It's just classist abuse, really, isn't it? I think Mm -hmm. that's that's really what it is. But also notice, though, notice, though, that I made you a rank higher than Boyd, so I wouldn't get an earful over it. Uh, after last year's, after last week's secretary thing. Yes, yes, I, thought, I appreciate. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate. You go, so you're, so you're, you're well a captain, done. so that's that's nice. I mean, I'm kidding, of course, because you wouldn't be a rank higher than boy, because we all know you're quite clearly a Cylon. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> right. Shall we get into it? 2018, a what a year. Uh, before we get into the big list of shows, should we talk through some of the little things that made 2018 a triumphant year for TV? Now, a word of warning. It might be handy for listeners to have some kind of notepad and writing implement handy, as we will be talking about a lot of shows and recommending another lot of shows which you may have missed and in all likelihood didn't even know existed. So uh, so you have been warned. I think we should kick off with our favourite scenes slash episodes of 2018. What particular things tickled your fancy this year, Boyd? James, how can we look any further than the first 20 minutes of a little show called Bodyguard. Oh, Wasn't it 10 minutes? No, it was about 20. Was it? It I think it was like 19 minutes, 35 seconds. I haven't timed it. You've just made that up. I've just made that up. It was pretty much 20 minutes. Um, I went to the screening of it. They had a nice screening of it. They often do these things at the BFI with Jeb Mercurio there. and And everyone was like wrapped, sat there, wrapped, silent, riveted. It was a brilliantly constructed scene. You didn't know where it was going. It felt real. It was just one of the greatest. And I think that whole phenomenon of that show, which let's not forget, the finale was the most watched, so BBC says, the most watched British drama in history. Absolutely extraordinary figures. And it all started with that unbelievably exciting opening 20 minutes of that show. So... I just think it was one of the, you know, it was just an absolute triumph by Jim McCree. His storytelling, his mm. establishment of character, um, setting the scene, making it feel like it's happening in front of your eyes and it's completely um, happening and it's real it is, is fantastic. So, yeah. And I had that on my list as well, but I had a couple of other ones and I chose one that was quite obvious and one that wasn't in a kind of classic head girl overpairing <laughs> Terry White manner. So, first of all, Killing Eve. So, mm. 
everybody knows how much um, we loved Killing Eve on pilot and actually everybody else in this country did I think second to Bodyguard it was obviously one of the biggest hits of the year now I'm talking about the scene when they finally come face to face in her house I mean it's remarkable in its kind of um, mixture of thrill sexual tension and crushing domesticity really the bit where uh, Eve heats up the leftover food for Villanelle is quite something else indeed so Villanelle um, breaks in and has a confrontation with Eve. She just got out of the shower, Boyd. Yeah, but Remind so. me. Yeah. She just got out of the shower. And basically, she's like, we need to talk. And they're playing the amazing Matt and Cows game. Matt and Cows? Matt and Cows. I Matt love and Matt and Cows. I love a bit of Matt and Cows in the morning. <laughs> the cat and mouse game they've been playing intellectually for um, at the episode so far becomes physical. And it's so brilliant. There's a bit where she, Villanelle, has Eve up against the wall with a knife to her throat. Mm. And you think, oh my God, she's going to stab her. And instead she leans in and sniffs the perfume. And it's so erotically charged and really summed up, I think, the writing and the direction in that scene perfectly spoke to that incredible tension, the kind of intellectual tension, the sexual tension, the physical tension, that knife edge of are they going to rip each other's heads off or are they going to get off with each other? That really was at the heart of Killing Eve, for me, is all there beautifully in that scene. And can I go into my other one that's a bit more surprising? Absolutely. As many because as you want. I've got this to get this off my chest, right? So, season four, episode nine of The Affair. So, anybody who watched The Affair season three knows that it was a steaming pile of, of feces. So, most people gave up on season three that I know season four came back with such a bang and I accidentally watched it because I was bored and I was flipping around and I thought oh, I'll just watch one episode and see what it's like season four is a complete return to form for the affair back to where it was in season one and this I'm just going to say this is a spoiler but it's a very very well-known spoiler and it was on several months ago so um I knew that Alison was leaving who's obviously the main character who has the affair in the first place with um uh, Noah Soloway and what I didn't know is how, so I deliberately hadn't read anything. And if you don't want, if you somehow still haven't seen it, please just skip forward a few minutes at this point. Can I skip forward a few you, minutes? You, you, like your <laughs> how do I do that? I'm afraid you could leave um, the room. <laughs> and people have talked about it publicly. She's talked about it on the red carpet. But essentially, um, you find out Alison um, has died in an episode she's not even in, if my memory serves me correct. It's when her ex-husband's, plural, because, you know, Alison, um identify her body in the morgue and you're still convinced it's not her and and they say she's committed suicide the next episode is the most innovative piece of television i've seen this year so everybody knows that the affair is told from two characters perspective right in two halves this is told both from Alison's perspective. You don't know which one is the correct one and which one is her warped, warped version of what happens. There's one kind of romantic one where she accidentally kind of dies-ish when things get a bit rough. There's another one which is brutal and awful. There's one of the most intense pieces of television I've seen. The last 10 minutes, which I'm not going to go into in detail, is heartbreaking and beautiful and incredible and that is high concept television the same story told from a, a character's completely different viewpoint it is remarkable and i would say that season four of the affair is worth watching just so you can enjoy that episode i don't think a character's death on screen has been handled in such an interesting and fucked up way 
in television that I can remember. And when I was making this list, I forgot about this show. And I was like, oh my God, we haven't talked about this at all on the pilot podcast. And this would actually be my recommendation this year is if you thought this was kind of past its prime last season, go back to season four. They're all on um, Now TV and Mm. Skybox sets and give it a crack. Because as I say, pure innovative telly, which I think people forget that when the affair started as those two viewpoints, it really was. I really want to see The Affair and I've never watched a single episode of it. Go back to the beginning. Honestly, it's it's great telly and it does lag, doesn't it, boy? So you're nodding. Yeah, I, I nod, I nod. Yeah, I, I, I agree because uh, I completely forgot about The Affair as well. But it, I think it's partly because of that really disappointing third season with ludicrous French people French involved. French yeah. woman. Um, and also the weird... I mean, I was not stop myself from going on about the flaws of season three. The whole man who didn't really exist, yeah. didn't exist, that whole thing was just bizarre. Anyway, but season four... And, and you're right, that whole... I mean, that whole thing revolving around that character. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, we, we should definitely mention that. I want to mention a couple of other... I mean, James, you get a go or so eventually, but <laughs> we do need to mention Inside Number Nine's Halloween episode. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, um, yes. Which is one, one of the greatest achievements of the tv year um, and of live tv and of live tv it was live i mean the whole this this series series four that went out only in the year i thought was the best year anyway i loved every single episode and you know some more than others as you always do because they're completely different every week but the live one what a what an absolute just they not only was it i mean being live is is ambitious and bold enough but the complexity of it the um the self-referentialness of it, but in an entertaining and incredibly accessible way, and the fact that you didn't know whether it was really happening or not, or whether it was a genuine error or not, was so thrilling. I, I don't think I've been as thrilled by a TV moment this year as when the chills go, go running down your spine and you realise they've done that deliberately, and I've just about worked out that it hasn't gone wrong technically, but it could have done, and I'm still not quite sure until I watch it again on iPlayer immediately afterwards, which I did, was so extraordinary. So yeah, that instant number nine, that whole episode has to be a highlight of the year. And the other, and of course, The Haunting of Hill House, the the, the episode six, which is basically four long takes. Yes. Absolutely phenomenal. And that's an example of a technical triumph and I think on, on um, Twitter, Mike Flanagan, the d- director, writer, creator, etc., did a brilliant thread explaining how they did it. And yeah, I saw that. Which, is, mm. uh, which must still be there to look at. But it's an example of where, in, you know, a, a technical, extraordinary technical achievement is completely worth worth the creation and the art that it, that it um, worked towards. What's the phrase I'm looking for? It wasn't just doing it for its own sake. No, that's it what wasn't. I'm trying to say. And I love the fact that and, like the camera was going, it broke on yeah, the last take, yeah. and there were so many yeah. little. And it made it even scarier, and it made it feel, because it made it feel you were, you were you were there with these characters in this situation, in this in this uh, you know dealing with the death and dealing with the ghosts and everything. It was unbelievably great. Mm. Very, very good. That was on my list as well, as was the Daredevil prison visit for similar reasons. That whatever it is, 13-minute one where he goes yeah. in, he has a big old fight, they swap in stuntmen, they swap out stuntmen, then he has a big dialogue scene, then he goes out again. I mean, that's a hell of a thing, isn't it? It was. Uh, that, was that was one of my favourite scenes. Uh, back on uh, Haunting of Hill House, the Bent Neck Lady was yeah. one of the best episodes yeah. I've seen in as long as I can remember. That was, I mean... Damn, it was. that was an incredible bit of storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> Did you just say damn? damn. <laughs> Hot damn! Yeah. Hot damn! That was a good episode. I can pull that off. Right? Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, two out, two incredible mm. episodes in a series of uh, where every the whole thing was was pretty spectacular. Yeah. But yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. Those two were standout episodes. Um, and can I also mention Shop Objects without spoiling it? But the final, the final episode, the final episode, and yeah. particularly yeah. the montage scene in yeah. the middle of the end credits. Yeah. 
that's on my list as well. Yeah. Oh my god! Obviously, we will not discuss exactly what it is. Because I'm sure there'll be people binging sharp objects yeah. over Christmas. Yes, but... including me. So this is on my um, things I regret having given up on. Yeah. Um, I may actually end up writing a, a give it time for this. <laughs> um, one of Pilot's uh, most loved franchises in the magazine. If I actually love it, because I really regret it now. I'm not giving it more time, especially because you, James, did exactly the same yeah. thing that I did, but I've now ended I up. I went back doing... to it, and now I'm a convert. Yeah. Oh, so good, so good. But yes, those end credits. The amount of people who responded to me on Twitter and said they had no idea there was something in the credits and just turned it off when the episode ended. And I was like, yeah. go back, go back! Because yeah. uh, that was really good. What else did I have on my list? The Tapao sex scene in Sally yes. Forever was there with uh, the with the towing yes. of the bits. Yeah. The pooing was there on the, mine Oh, too. that was yeah. not on mine. I, I never need to see Why? that again. Why? Why was it? Not as a most memorable. Scatologically upsetting. I really enjoyed um, the experience of showing that to Terry live. <laughs> what, what live while we were making up this podcast and <laughs> watching Terry physically <laughs> gag repeatedly and genu- I was genuinely scared there was going to be some kind of incident yeah, that, you know, we, we would be, be taken to HR or something for yeah. forcing one of the most important people in Bauer to, to physically... What, what is it you doing, Terry? What was it you said? Gipping. 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 Oh. It was a massive gipping. Half make yeah. But I agree. I think the Tapao um, love scene, the mm. sex scene, which at the end of episode one, the two women getting on it in absolutely the most hilarious <laughs> manner, brilliantly cut together to China in your hand, was the funniest yes. scene. And that just set the tone for that whole... Brilliant series, yeah. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, other ones I had on my list, going back, Terry mentioned Killing Eve. My favourite Killing Eve moment is a is a kind of an understated one, which is uh, when Fiona Shaw first takes Sandra O to the building. She, says, she just says, I saw a rat there drinking a can of Coke. And then she goes, both hands, quite extraordinary. And then opens the door. I was like, that may be my favourite line of the year. But is it, and wasn't that the beauty of Killing Eve? <laughs> the showing the kind of like weirdness, quirkiness and everyday kind of mundanity yeah. of life in the Secret Service. But who puts that in a, in a teleplay? That's just the most glorious bit of writing. I just thought I, I loved, it. Yeah, it, loved I, it. I did have another Killing Eve, which was the chase sequence in the Berlin nightclub mm. um, where Bill is, spoiler, um, stabbed. So, in you know, it's old school cat and mouse in, or mat and cows, uh, in many <laughs> respects. <laughs> oh, God, I look so smug then. But um, it's not actually the moment when he's chasing her. It's like one shot, and this is also in line for my shot of the year, which is when she stops in the crowd, turns around, and she gives him that beautiful, kind of whimsical smile. And it takes both the audience and Bill probably a second and a half to realise that means I'm going to come and kill you. Yeah, it's when he realises he's the mouse, not the cat. Absolutely. (laughs) Or the cow's not the mat. Or the cow's. And she chases and she starts heading back towards him. He's frantically scrambling and and then she grabs him and and is holding him and she stabs him. And I have to say, like, that look, I think um, Jodie Comer has turned out to be a remarkable actress. She showed great kind of promise in Dr. Foster that I think she's just, she outsells herself on Unkilling Eve. But that smile was just that perfect kind of beguiling, charming, murderous, mix that she had brilliantly and that they wrote brilliantly in that character and that sequence I just thought was so beautifully done because it took kind of a what is a narrative trope really in those kind of um, dramas and made it into something really twisted and interesting yeah and I know you don't like this series which is partly why Succession um, I loved Succession from the start I really I enjoyed it all the way through but the the, it, it turned into 
one of the best things of the year for me. And I think it was episode six where all the characters who you hate all the characters, you're I supposed did. to hate all yeah. the characters, that's fine because they're still all incredibly interesting and different and fascinating. Um, they all gather in a ranch for what's supposed to be a family therapy session. And it's all for kind of PR purposes. And it just, it, it's, it's almost like a kind of set piece play in the middle of this fantastic series anyway. Brilliantly done, hilarious, funny. And it's, it, it, honestly, James, you've got to go back and watch it because it's fantastic. It's never going to happen. Yeah. I watched five hours of that nonsense. I'm not well, doing it again. get to the sixth. <laughs> um, another one on my list, The Lock-In in Save Me. Oh yeah. So this is a bit where Nelly yeah. where the pieces fall into place for Nelly and he locks the doors of the pub. And again, I'm not going to, to go into too many details about this scene in case you haven't seen Save Me because it is available on DVD and you should go and get it. Uh extraordinary series, one of my favourites of the year. And that moment, just the expression on his face and then the confrontation and then the reaction he gets from the person he confronts. Never has a person on screen been more punchable than that person, I would mm-hmm. say. Uh, I think that's incredible. And also, the last thing on my list, almost any scene in Westworld when Tandy Newton is being a badass. Cause which she of, was, of which there was many. Of which there were many, because she was, I mean, fucking hell. <laughs> I mean, fucking hell. I mean, I mean, that's all you hell. can say. Oh, uh, and we should mention that episode. What was, oh, what was the episode name? I'm just going to look it up, which was the episode told entirely from the perspective of, of the, the, the Native ghost American. drive guy. Yeah. yeah. A Native American ghost guy, ghost guy. Ghost guy, ghost um, nation. I think ghost nation. Yeah. Um, and it was, so it was episode eight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kick Stewart, and it was. I mean, just from a pure cinematography perspective, yeah. it was the most beautiful Westworld's ever looked. I mean, did a great job in terms of representation because still, you know, thinking about uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, mm. one of the criticisms I had about that, I really loved Ballad of Buster Scruggs, but obviously the um, Native American representation was kind of, you know, your classic murderous lynchers um, kind of riding around scalping people. Um, whereas... This, I felt like it was such a... It was one of the most beautiful stories told in one of the most beautiful ways. Totally true to the show, um, but like a mini film dropped in the middle. Mm. And you didn't have to keep track of ten timelines. No, it was quite nice. It was a beautifully simple, (laughs) pure... I agree. I mean, there were a couple at the end, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, just to keep you... Yeah, Yeah, that that show, actually, season two... I mean, it is a show that that resides very firmly up its own arse, yet... It is fascinating, and I really enjoyed like, all the samurai world stuff. I thought was great. Yeah. I thought it was very, very textured. This second season, I did enjoy it a lot. I do think it takes its sweet time to get where it needs to go, and it deliberately, you know, maybe sneers at you a little bit. But but you know what? That's fine. Obtuse, I call it. I it always is. call it obtuse television. And, Exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> and I and part of me, you know, the way the working glass girl in me hates that kind of television. And the uh, uh, heightened intellectual part of me that thinks I'm better than everybody goes, well, I understand it. So <laughs> Why don't you? <laughs> um, but it's, it, I mean, if you talk about remarkable television, um, cinematic, film-like content made week after week after mm. week, it's really kind of untouchable. No, it's a hell of a thing. Well, we've been quite positive there. Should we move on to something ever so slightly negative? What are shows you hated that everyone else loved? And obviously I can kick this off because we've already touched on this. Succession, I could not get into i could not force myself to like a single living breathing human in it i wanted them all to die i wasted five hours watching it because you told me after episode five it gets good it didn't uh i'm never ever ever going back to that again that said i have bought the blu-ray for my uncle for christmas <laughs> because Brilliant. i must say this that way but i mean good because i'm sure your uncle will appreciate his uh, great qualities did you not like the thick of it or veep either those 
Well, funnily enough, those are shows, both of them, that I recognise as good, but I don't enjoy oh, watching. Okay. Uh, but I think for them, it's more because the comedy is that very sort of hyper-real comedy of embarrassment, which I don't enjoy. Uh, I think Malcolm Tucker is glorious, but I find swearing big and clever. So well, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but that's just one element of what makes succession so yeah. great. Yeah. I, just, I, just, I think I need someone to latch onto. I need uh, to not hate everyone. There has to be someone there that I don't wish a painful death upon, and that wasn't the case. Mine's less a show I hated that everyone else loved, more a show that I went off quite violently and found it impossible to reconnect with, which was Handmaid's Tale. Yes. So I just found it so... Um, so kind of, mi- I'm, I'm going to shock you. Yeah. It's too much misery but porn. But this is it. If it turned you off, then they know yeah. they've gone way beyond the pale. It was really... As a, do you know what? Um, um, James and I know you and I slightly disagree with this, which is I think I ex- I do feel like I experience it in a slightly different way because I'm a woman mm. and that that isn't looking at some of the things that Mike Pence, for example, would like to do or Jake <laughs> or um, Jacob McGreese would like to do. Yeah. That actual Reece kind Mog. of... Me- sorry, Morag Reese. Morag Reese. Jacob... Jacob, Mor- Jacob Mattenkaus, I believe, is actually his name. <laughs> what are you with me today? That guy. Um, <laughs> the things he would like to do to abortion rights in this country, mm. that future is only a couple of bad changes of government away for women. And it really terrifies me. There are things in the States right now where yeah. they're trying to outlaw abortion. Um, so it really feels close to the bone and not just that, it's unrelenting. And I found this season, I tried for the first three and I just found it impossible to watch. It left me feeling drained, terrified. There was no hint of real optimism every time there was that it'd get squashed or the shit kicked out of it, literally and metaphorically. Mm. Um, and I, I know it's always been like this, and I know it's an important story. And you know, when Margaret Atwood wrote it, um, well, obviously the first season, but when she, Margaret Atwood wrote the original book, it seemed like such a kind of unbelievable, impossible reality. Whereas now it doesn't, and actually all it does is it feels like watching the news in five years or something. And so I found it increasingly impossible. It just left me so anxious and so upset afterwards. Mm. And it's something I couldn't shake. And I wasn't getting the kind of artistic nourishment that would even balance that out, to be honest. So I just had to stop. I agree with you. I made it through two episodes of that. I think there was a point, and this is not really a spoiler because it happens in the first episode, there's a point where they handcuff Mm. one of the handmaids to a hob and turn it on. And I was just like, nope, not for me. Not yeah. doing this anymore. This is you are just. I am actively. It's 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 masochism. Like yep. I'm actively watching something that makes me thoroughly miserable, and there just isn't enough to outweigh that. There's but, no upside. No, that opening bit where they they're all going to be where they're kind of play hung yeah. in the sports stadium. When the nooses were going around the neck and they're playing Kate Bush, I was just crying hysterically, and I'm like, what kind of opening is that? And you know, effective television and shocking, etc. But. Yeah. It's it. I, I just found it impossible. But it's what you say. I think if we wasn't, if we weren't living in the time we live in, it might not be as bad because it is so so. Well, sort except of I think I, I totally agree as well. I've written, I've written, I've written Handmaid's Tale down as well. But I loved season one, so and I thought I. season one, yeah. and season one resonated because of the times we live in. But I think they they I, I, it has to be something to do with the fact that they had the source material there, yeah. and it was all being directly adapted very very cleverly from Margaret Atwood's novel. Whereas season two, of course as we all know, wasn't. And I felt that they were like, I thought the, the only th- thing they thought they could do was ratchet it all up, yep. ratchet the sadism yep. and the cruelty 
up, but they didn't need to do that because it, there was I, already loads. I felt like yeah, there was already loads, <laughs> and I just felt I think gen- and I I, can't, I always get annoyed when people say of, of a show that's adapted from you know a, a novel which doesn't have a sequel that, that people complain that they're doing another series that people are complaining about Big Little Lies too. It's a similar situation. There's only one novel, but they've got the writer to create a new story, so I hopefully have. it'll be fine. But with I thought with this show is a classic example. They could have left it at that one series. Mm. It could have been a self, and I know it had an open ending, but. The way they've carried on with it, it really ha- has ruined it for me. Really mm. ruined yeah. it for me because I don't want to carry on watching it. And I and I was absolutely th- 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 just the way they modulated the sadism in series one worked. And I feel they've completely lost in series two. Yeah, it's really annoying. My the other one, I don't hate. It. I, I mean, I famously, I don't. I never hate anything really. So I'm not going to watch something if I'm thinking I'm going to hate it. But uh, Westworld. Apart from that episode, mm. and apart from one or two other episodes, three or four episodes I enjoyed. But as a general thing, this season really alienated me. And to the point where I felt the only thing they had was making it as complicated mm. and difficult to follow. And that puzzle box storytelling thing, which I like. I don't have a problem with that. You know, I like the Twin Peaks TV series. I, I love all that. What but is wrong with you? Because I think... Because it was time to do something a bit different. There's a difference between surrealism and, you know... That channel- was David Lynch wanking into a sock for but 20 I enjoy- hours. I can, I can watch him wanking into a sock for 40 hours. But there was something about Westworld that... It was, it was, it was, I think I felt it was trying to have its cake and eat it. It was trying to be a kind of big mainstream sci-fi show with all these different things. And yet, it was, I could not be asked to follow the, the tortuous timeline things. Mm. Particularly, what's his name's character, you know, um, uh, the, you know, the creator of the park. What's, you know, that, that uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, him just wandering through the whole series looking mystified. <laughs> in, in his different, in his two or three different incarnations. Yeah. Like, poor, I just, every time he came on screen, I was like, oh, I just can't be bothered anymore. So yeah, Westworld wow. and Handmaid's Tale were the two okay. big things that annoyed me. Wow, some hate there from Boyd. Extraordinary. I enjoy that. I know, so did I. You should do that more often. A new segment, (laughs) Boyd hate. Boyd be hating, we'll call it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw in Luke Cage season two, which I didn't enjoy at all. I would throw in uh, Iron Fist season two, but I didn't watch it. Uh, No one liked Iron Fist season two. But Luke Cage season two, I I really found, weirdly, it wasn't the worst Marvel uh, season has been, but it was one where, towards the end, I began to hate it because of the time it was sucking away from my life. And yet... I wanted to see how it ended because I'd started it and I couldn't, you know, the obsessive compulsive part of me couldn't mm-hmm. actually stop. But I really resented the fact that I was still watching it. Um, That's not good. No, no. It's, it's not great. And, but now I feel a bit bad because, you know, obviously these shows are no longer with us. But um, hey-ho. Because of you. Do? Because of me. <laughs> All because of my hate. Sorry. Sorry, Luke. Um, so let's sw- switch that around. What did you love that everyone else hated? So I, I don't think everyone hated it, but I really feel like it was underrated, which was Wonderlust, which was the Tony Collette mm. BBC um, marital drama comedy. And I, I say underrated because it came out, if we remember, around the same time as both Killing Eve and Bodyguard. There, were, there was one um, period where all three were on. It then got picked up by Netflix and, and went over to the States. I think Tony. I mean, I think she's a remarkable actor, anyway. But I think it was, it was, it generated a lot of headlines for being really sexual and really sexually aggressive and really shocking for the BBC at nine o'clock. Um, but actually, for me, it was like had loads of brilliant kind of low key, um, relatable humour about middle aged people having sex, which isn't the <laughs> sexiest or funniest thing naturally um and i thought it was really lovely and actually at the heart of it was really warm and talked about some really important things but i feel like 
between the like sex, sex, sex on the BBC headlines um, and the fact it kind of got dropped in at probably not an opportune time for it to gain headway when you have two of the biggest shows in history showing. Mm. I feel like it went under a lot of people's radars or didn't kind of get the love it warrants. So I, I think if you kind of gave up on it or didn't really bother at the time because you had too much on your plate, maybe over Christmas and New Year, get yourself... I don't know if it's out on box set at the moment. I presume yeah. it's on. Yeah, yeah it is. Have a, ha, give it BBC another BBC has made pretty much every drama the BBC have shown this year, they've made available as a box set. It's, it's, pretty, it's, brilliant, it's brilliant on iPlayer. Yeah. Mm. Did you guys actually watch I enjoyed it? it. I really liked it. Yeah, I really liked it. And I think um, it had... It, it kept going. I thought, I, you know, I, I, I thought it was... I, I would think it's up there, you know, bubbling under, yeah, our top 10, kind of top 20 list, definitely. And, and I think it was brilliantly acted. Um, and it was just different, you know, to get a, a, a BBC One primetime show that's not a genre piece in any yeah. way in any way and is and is asking an interesting question about can you know can a long-term relationship do this pivot to this this completely new world i thought it was really enjoyable yeah and it was a brilliantly written really well acted i thought it was a really good show yeah and it was undervalued definitely yeah. i think this is what we're saying isn't it, in this section yeah, yeah i don't yeah. think anyone hated no. wanderlust you'd be twisted and sick if you did apart from i mean you know the newspapers made stories out of it but yeah. uh, you know but i don't think bloody journalist for you yeah but it was definitely underappreciated like my choices for example, which is Sick of It, which was the Carl Pilkington Sky One comedy, which he co-wrote and co-created, and in which there were two. He played two versions of himself. So you saw him, and you saw the voice inside his oh, head. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think people just thought, oh, it's Carl Pilkington doing a thing. That's what thing. I did. That's not going to work. <laughs> um, but it was great. It was. It was. It was funny. It was. The most surprising thing about it, it was beautifully shot. So I think, you know, Sky have clearly said to all of their programme makers, whatever genre, you know, you can't just do a shoddy, you know, kind of visually tedious thing these days. So even though it was a, a half-hour sitcom form, really, it looked like a kind of Ken Loach film. It had that kind of... It was gritty yet beautiful-looking, shot in widescreen and everything. So it looked great. Carl was, Carl's acting was incredible. Like, he had to do moving things. He had to cry. It, honestly, it was a really, really good show. Massively underappreciated. Sick of it. You can watch all of that on Skybox sets. And I wanted to mention Making a Murderer. Making a Murderer Part 2. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned it mainly because I absolutely loved it. And I thought, you know, it was, it was still as riveting and as interesting and a, a shocking exploration of the American criminal justice system, which is fucked up from top to bottom. And yet there were articles deriding it in like places I think Vanity Fair had mm. an article pulling it apart tearing the it New apart Yorker the New Yorker it was the subject of a lot of intense scrutiny claiming that it kind of gone down a, a, the wrong road but I felt it like it if it, it found this character, Kathleen Zellner, um, the new, um, you know, the woman working in the defence of um, the people, you know, in, wrongly imprisoned, we think. And she's such an extraordinary character. She's so entertaining and amazing. And of course, it had to follow her because she was the star of the show. So I, I still think it showed you the shocking reality of how American criminal justice being, doesn't work. They're being sued, I believe. Already. They are being sued. Yeah. 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 Is it yeah. the sheriff? Somebody's yeah, doing them for defamation. Yeah. Don't you think it's there's an element of snobbery in it? I do, which Maybe, is yeah. I think there's a sense of what a documentary should do right. and what it should embrace. And those and we've talked about this before how those true crime things are often relegated to those cheap channels, shoddy reconstructions, yeah. blood splatters out of ketchup. Whereas <laughs> this was taking a cinematic form of documentary and putting it over. Yeah 
people who would be labelled white trash, who lived in trash, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And cases that would be told, their stories would be told to a certain audience yeah, in a certain absolutely. way. And I think there's a complacency about, because I don't think, you know, you just don't see the lives of these, you know, borderline people living on on, in, on the poverty line, really, in a small town in the middle of America, you know, you know, trying to make ends meet, as well as dealing with the crushing tragedy of the lives of their relatives in prison. Um, and also there's obviously the tragedy of the original victim, which it did not, you know, that, that was not that was not left out of the story in any mm. way. But we just don't see those things covered. So I think there was a complacency about the critics having a go at it. I thought it was an incredible series. Well, good James, stuff. I, I have nothing quite so worthy. I was going to say something I love that everyone else hated. I mean, with good reason, a discovery of witches. And I'd love to <laughs> sit here and say to you, oh, it's a, it's a gem, it's a diamond. It's a, I mean, it's bollocks. But I loved every second of it. I watched every single episode. I'd watch them again. I'll watch the next series. You can't stop me. I'm on a tear with this one. I think it was Sky's biggest rated homegrown show drama. Oh, clearly someone yeah. else liked it. I think it. people loved it, yeah. Oh, it's I mean, loads been recommissioned of fun. Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, it, yeah. There are only eight episodes as well, but Teresa Palmer was great, Matthew Good was great, it was so hammy, but it was loads of fun. Uh, so yes, I really enjoyed Discovery Witches. Another one I really enjoyed, and I think I'm out on a limb on, is Altered Carbon. Yes, you are. You are. On that, no yeah. one else liked that. <laughs> no. I thought it was great. I thought the world building was absolutely. Did fascinating. you watch the whole thing? Yeah, the whole thing. How many was like ten episodes? Yeah, I didn't get beyond episode two. Well, maybe that's, that's where you went wrong. Yeah. See, this is your succession, isn't it? You know, it be- is my. No, it was, well, it was just. It was just like just. That felt it was like a mix of all the other things we've seen. It was so Blade Runnery, wasn't it? It was like there were, a yeah, lot there of were, that. There were elements of the aesthetic, but Richard Morgan's book I've had sitting on my bookshelf for must be ten years, and I've never read it. Uh, and I watched the show, and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting setup like I, like I said I loved the mythology of it I thought that was it drew me in it fascinated me the kind of uh, you know uh, mystery sort of detective story in it to it I, was almost secondary to the world yeah. that he inhabited but you mainly liked the full frontal male nudity I mean there, were, there was a lot of cock in it yeah. and that's always yeah, a good thing of course. but uh <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, yes. There was a lot of pure foy, a lot of pure foy. A lot of pure fact, there was a lot of full frontal, you know, yeah. across the spectrum. Well, I know it was, you know, yeah. boobs and willies as far as the yeah. eye can see. It really was. Um, Where <laughs> it's altered carbon. I highly yeah, recommend it. It's on Netflix. Netflix. You can watch it. Boobs and all. Um, yeah, no, I, I I thought it was a good one. I thought Joel Kinnaman, who let's be honest, is not great in a lot of things, was actually really really good in this. So uh, that was on mine. Also on mine, the city in the city. Yes. Which, again, I think, I seem to recall at least one of you didn't like. I think it was uh, Terry. Me. Yeah. Boyd reviewed it. Yeah, I loved it. it. Loved I it. thought it was great. Yeah, loved it. I thought, I thought I, it was cheap and boring. Well, it had it had certainly had budgetary constraints, I think. But, but it, <laughs> Thank you for uh, translating for me. <laughs> but, but cheap and boring. It worked because the two cities, Bejel and Alcoma, Bejel was supposed to have this kind of almost like, you know, uh, sort of post post-war sort of Eastern European feel to it and it was supposed to feel run down and a bit shit which of course it did uh, but I really really loved that show and again I thought uh, you know this is China Meville's book it's based on I thought the the world building there the idea behind it these two cities that coexist in a single space was absolutely fascinating and I had a really fun interview with uh, David Morrissey on the Empire podcast actually about this uh, in the summer uh, he was great on it so I do recommend you you dig that out if well you I had haven't. a really fun interview with him on Even Pilot TV magazine yeah but, well. but he said mine was better he um, specifically he? said to me oh, oh I like you much more than Boyd, you're um, so much better at this. I agree about Citizen City, yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, Terry's wrong. It, I mean, it, I think it. I think it, it's just, you're just wrong. Extraordinary. <laughs> I, I don't think it looked cheap because I think it, I, I felt it was actually it coped. It, it it depicted those two cities. It did. 
in, to livings existing in the yeah. same space really well. It's a really hard thing to to do. I was like, how are they going to do this? I thought it, it achieved it really well. well mm. Boo hoo! And they like, made. <laughs> what do you want a chufty badge from being able to make a two... what a chufty badge? What's a chufty badge? Chufty badge for two, making two places look different. Yes. I swear to God, you just make words. What up. is a chufty bag? A chufty badge. It's like when you're a, a badge. Kid. Badge. When you're a chufty kid. Bag. And somebody had done some, and like somebody had bought an apple for the teacher. It's like, oh God, what does he want? A chufty badge. Did you is grow a badge up? that literally says chufty on it? Yeah. I don't know what's happening. Like a blue Peter badge from the north. Well, chufty badge is all round for the city in the city, I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was a really good one. Another one I want to mention, which is I'm not sure people hated it, but I do want to give a big shout out to The Walking Dead, which I feel has rallied significantly with the first half of the latest season. Uh, I've enjoy- I mean, anyone listening to the podcast will know that I've been enjoying this a lot. But I do think if you've given up on The Walking Dead, this is the season to come back for and just skip the previous two. Uh Ironically, Fear the Walking Dead has done the opposite. There was a point where Fear the Walking Dead was rubbish and The Walking Mm. Dead was good. And then The Walking Dead got rubbish and Fear the Walking Dead got really good. But now they've swapped positions again and The Walking Dead has got good and Fear the Walking Dead is now rubbish. A. Good, that's difficult to keep track of, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of. No, but I I kind of agree, yeah. Yeah. Which I I was going to say, American Horror Story, similarly, I think it's come back in in great form, this series. Mm. I'm really enjoying Apocalypse. I think it's the way it's brought back characters kind of moments where you least expect them the way it's integrated a kind of it started off as one thing it's kind of morphed into another thing for massive return to form for me for that show very good very good shall we move on to our top 10 of the year this is the official pilot top 10 should we begin with number 10 why the hell not a little bit of suspense let's count down okay at number 10 we have Sally Forever (laughs) I mean never have you wanted to see that Really? And no one ever needed to see many of the things that that show showed us or hear many of the things that it told us. And yet here it is. And it is glorious. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think quite rightly, Julia Davis working at the height of her powers, kind of unfettered. I, I think it's brilliant. I just, just kind of stand back for a minute that she is given the creative freedom to do this stuff by HBO <laughs> and Sky, you know, to, to, to show some of the most unbelievably sick and twisted things that have ever been seen on television. Mm. And I think they trust her because... I think there's a. I think the weird thing about it is there's a kind of she's exposing something true and real. So a lot of this was about they touched on the Me Too thing. Now there's a brilliant episode apart from the the sexy episodes. There's a brilliant episode where the female boss comes on to the female, and um uh and it's kind of like shows you that there can be a horrendous sexual exploitation within a workplace from one power crazed woman on another. That was really bold and interesting and daring. Um, I just think emotion. There's an emotional truth beneath the absolutely shocking, <laughs> hilarious, outrageous sex stuff that is what you kind of... which which makes it a historic event in te- television, the whole series. So, yeah, yeah absolutely brilliant. Terry? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with everything Boyd just Thanks. said. I mean, she's amazing. It's singular. I mean, it's in terms of innovative telly, memorable telly... <laughs> memorable is right. Um. And it was a little bit higher on my personal list. It was at number eight. Was it? Um, how high was it on your Gip of the Year list? Gip of the Year, it was a resounding number one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I greatly enjoyed it. And it is one of the most, um, as as Boyd said, boldest comedies, I think, that we've put out on British telly in a long time. Very good. At number nine, we have a show that has now sadly come to its close. And this is a show that I think far too few people have watched, which is The Americans. I haven't. 
Boyd. Oh, I haven't watched enough of this series. No. So in one of the things, one of the categories you set us was uh, something you should have watched and haven't. Yeah. And so I watched the first couple of episodes of the series, but I haven't caught it. And it's brilliant. It's it is absolutely brilliant. fantastic. And I've watched, you know, it's... it's, it's oh, hang an, on. Yeah, hang go on. on, hang on. So it's I haven't seen it. You haven't really seen it. And it's ended up on Pilot's top 10 of the year, which is, by the way, listeners, some kind of scientific maths which takes into account the three of us and our personal top 10s. And yet, The Americans, James. Yes, The Americans is on the list. I think The Americans is partly on the list, partly because I did also consult some of our contributors on this and everyone bangs on about this. But Did you just tell a barefaced lie? No, I I asked. There wasn't a lot of science to it, but I did cover opinions. You know, I listen to people occasionally, uh, but I'm I'm not up to date with the Americans. I do watch it, but I'm I'm not up to date with it. But it is fantastic, and I don't know why I'm not up to date with it. I, th- well, I think I it's because must... it was on ITV4. It's yeah. a large part of it. You know, it, it, it started out on ITV. Mm. The first series they showed on Saturday night at ten o'clock, and it kind of then it kind of went, I think went to ITV two or three. They kind of like stripped down the ITV channels <laughs> to the point where it's got to the one that no one even knows exists hardly, yeah. and it's just been criminally kind of undervalued. By, by them so you really have to seek it out and find it um, but it it's an absolutely phenomenal show yeah just it, it, what it's great at is building up tension in that way that you know in, kind of in a similar way to something like Homeland does at its best mm. set piece tense sequences because you you're, you've grown to love and appreciate these characters who are undercover Russian agents yeah. in the middle of America and so you're, you're const- there's a, that uses that constant edginess in a, in a brilliant brilliant way yeah it's, it's, it's an incredible show which yes. we've all got to go back and finish which, go and get which us today with. Really, should all watch. Yes. <laughs> At number eight, we have Save Me. Yeah, I mean, right. This was early in the year, wasn't it? It was quite it was kind very of early in the year. Spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, this is when Pilot launched. Yeah, it was. And I, 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 I me, at the time, I was like, I'd be amazed if anything's better than this mm. in terms of TV drama of the particularly British TV drama, yeah. because not only was it a really good crime story, you know, you really wanted to know what was the mystery of this dis- this girl who disappeared and could he find and all of that. It was a, it was a completely um, believable, realistic, authentic mm. slice mm-hmm. of working class life mm. without belaboring the point. And it, it's it, it famously, it, it's, you know, it's set in a housing estate, set in that, in that pub you talked about. That's right. But all of it, it was kind of shot in a beautiful way. So it wasn't like, it wasn't saying this is a kind of gritty, horrible, nasty world. It showed that the way the community kind of came together to yeah. some extent. There was real affection for it. Real affection. Written by and starring the Len- glorious Lenny, Lenny James. James. And what a lot of it based on his... Yeah. Experiences his childhood growing what up. What an incredible achievement from him! He managed to write it in his spare time of yeah. filming The Walking Dead Walking and the Fear Walking the Walking Dead. Bloody Dead as well. <laughs> and he wrote this. He wrote every single episode bar one, and even mm. that he just got someone to write. You know, he still got the bare bones of it. He created. Yeah, yeah, a brilliant achievement. Yeah, and I think you know I do enjoy these kinds of dramas, but I think generally working class dramas in this country fall into, as you say, kind of an unrelentingly grim kitchen sink. You know, think Shane Meadows, which is, you know, remarkable, but um, doesn't kind of necessarily always show the texture. And what I loved about this is there were moments of joy and camaraderie and that kind of um, family sense in the pub, but that can pivot and switch on a dime. And and it kind of showed a a realistic view of being working class in this country without it being tropes and Mm. and massive cliches and all about benefits or struggling to feed your kids or you know all these really real problems this country faces but i loved that he presented a really nuanced picture nobody was kind of squeaky clean but Mm, nobody was demonized it was it was really well done it it was 
I mean, it was pretty fucking hard watching at times as well. It was incredibly yeah. bleak. There's, uh, without going again, without going into spoilers, the auction episode was oh, one of the most yeah. harrowing episodes of television I think I've ever experienced. But it's so fucking good. And he is doing a second series of this. And I absolutely cannot wait for it. Yeah, can't wait. So absolutely. save me. Yeah. At number eight. At number seven, we have The Doctor. Terry, I'm sure you've got loads to say about this. <laughs> What a noise that was. What that a was, sound. That was the emotional roller coaster. <laughs> that is yeah. my heart. Ooh. So this was also, we've got a category, James, that you um, gave to us, which was about personal highlights. And, yeah. and this was on there for me because, look, I remember the reaction when Jodie Whittaker was announced. And I actually found it really upsetting because the abuse, which was pure vitriol and sexism that you saw on social media. Mm. I mean, we all expected there to be something of a backlash, um, especially there is, you know, the classic trolls on Twitter. Um, But it was so loud and so vile in its nature. And it really made me wonder how far we'd come as a British society in terms of representation. I mean, you know, just the doctor, by the way, you know, has two hearts, is an alien um, being played... But, but not allowed to have an alien vagina. vagina. Um, and I, I honestly, I was like, oh my God, this could really have huge impact on Doctor Who's a show. God, her as an actor, I can't imagine, thank God she's not on social media, I can't imagine having to see all that stuff or feeling that out there in the world. And then it was like a bloody fairy tale because it started and... The work spoke for itself. She is, and I have to say, pretty much silenced everybody. I've seen barely anything since. Every Sunday night, all you get on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook is people once again in love with Doctor Who, talking about the showing their kids Doctor Who, you know, a female Doctor being their kid's first experience with the Doctor. It's so positive and so beautiful, and this is totally out of, like, character for me to be talking like this. But <laughs> I, they've made it into... They've given new vitality and life to the show and they reference it sometimes with such a beautiful lightness of touch, with such confidence. They don't lessen the significance of um, the Doctor being a woman. They don't make it trivial, but they also don't wear it heavily on their shoulders. It's part of the Doctor, but it's also irrelevant. She is, and I've said this before, Jodie Whittaker is one of the few rare actors who is born to play the Doctor. She is the Doctor. She's remarkable. Her assistants and her travelling companions are remarkable. The TARDIS has never seemed so exciting and vibrant. And it's all that, all those things that Doctor Who is meant to be, which is educational, informative, scary, funny, moving, touching. You know, you learn things. That Rosa Parks episode was done fantastically. Not trying to be edgy or modern or any of it. Just beautifully, classically, and yet with such relevance, Doctor Who, and it's just, I can't kind of articulate how significant I think the success of this has and been. did you feel, I'm asking because I genuinely don't know because I never got past the first episode, but did you feel like the multiple uh, companions thing worked, that dynamic? Does that... I did, and, and we talked about it because I was like, you can't have more than one, you know, I you're used to that intimacy of, mm. of it being one assistant and the Doctor, so Rose, for example, when Billy Piper, her and David Tennant's Doctor... Their relationship was born of intimacy, of there being a club of two, and they only understood each other. And that gave their relationship a beautiful, like, romantic intensity. But each of those companions now serve a different purpose. And actually, 
it's a much better show for it. And Bradley Walsh, I mean, who knew? Absolutely, you know, he's like been the secret weapon, I think, of the whole series. And because it, it's been, I think it's really interesting how Chris Chibnall, the new showrunner, has really has changed it in lots and lots of ways. So he's definitely, it's definitely a new approach mm. to storytelling, to to character. And some people haven't liked it. I mean, it's definitely divided. I think the the Who fan base, and mm. by the way, you know, the Who fan base basically, like most entitled fan bases, <laughs> uh, rebels against every new showrunner. You know, so now Chris Jimmel was facing the same kind of ludicrously over the top criticism that Moffat got. That every, you know, now everyone's like, oh, Rusty Davis, you know, he never did anything wrong. Well, at the t- I remember at the time, people were slagging him off even for his stuff. So, bearing all that in mind, I think it's brilliant the way that Chris Jimmel has changed the show. In, in, in subtle and interesting ways. And he's not done it just for the sake of it, because I loved Moffat's reign as Doctor Who. I thought, you know, every season there were brilliant, brilliant episodes. So I'm, in no way am I criticising. It's just different in a very interesting way. Each week is an individual story. There's only almost the only arc, actually, that's been is Bradley Walsh's um, response to losing his wife, yeah. played by Sharon D. Clark, which has been a recurring element mm. of the series. And I thought it's been beautifully done. So it's, it, that has been, apart from that, there have been self-contained, very very different episodes as you say you know showing the rosa one was brilliant teaching us teaching us a history lesson but in the most entertaining and enjoyable way possible i loved the recent one in the in the fjord set in yeah. the in the i loved that one which we you know was a couple of weeks ago and was just an out there almost lynchian david lynchian weird episode with lots of strange things happening and a talking frog at the end and but but i absolutely you absolutely went along with it and, and what this i think for me what this first series of Chris Jimmel as showwright and of Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor has shown is just the the extraordinary breadth of Doctor Who. That can, you know, every week has been something completely different, and most of them I've really, really enjoyed. There've been one or two that haven't worked fine, but that's the nature of Doctor Who. That's in the nature of the whole show. So yeah, I'm totally here for it being in our top ten. Okay. That was at Doctor Who at number seven. At number six, a very English scandal, which I'll be honest, I never watched. Oh, James! I know that, but that and one of the others on this top ten are two on my shows I missed list: Hugh Grant, mm. Ben Whishaw, Stephen Frears, Russell T Davis. You can't go wrong with those people working on the show, but it was even better than I, I expected. T- telling the true story of the scandal of Jeremy Thorpe actual leader of a political party and MP in the 70s who actually plotted to murder his secret gay lover, played by Ben Whishaw. Q Grant, absolutely fantastic, never been better. It just... And it just showed Russell T Davis, who now... Who's, this was a massive hit for him and for the BBC. And it, it took this kind of story and turned into something almost like wacky and zany and yet incredibly moving at the same time which is what Russell T Davis does brilliantly he can move he can manage those tonal shifts I think like almost no other writer can it was a complete triumph from start to finish and now thank god now you know that it was so great that he's now doing two series coming up one years and years which they're filming now for the BBC the one with Russell Tovey and Emma Thompson and then after that there's gonna he's gonna do his long gestating drama about how AIDS affected um British gay the British gay community which is going to be on Channel 4. So suddenly everyone's gone, yeah, Russell T. Davis is an absolute genius. I mean, he's always been an absolute genius, but this show was incredible. You see, I I struggled to get on with the show. So I thought that the performances were remarkable. I really did. Hugh Grant, I mean, I think he's an incredible actor. I think people always forget that about Hugh Grant yeah. is he doesn't just play the foppish Bridget Jones English mm. gentleman all the time and actually he you know he's he's not only been in Richard Curtis films he's actually um he was also in Paddington 2. He was in Paddington 2. And but um, get Oscar nomination. Uh I I don't know. I don't know what it was. I gave this show 
two goes around the merry-go-round and just didn't connect with me at all. Wow. Were they too posh? Was that the problem? I mean, it might How be. How did this end up so, in, uh, number six? And if neither of you... You didn't watch it and you didn't no, even no, like I it that much. I tallied oh, your you vote. Oh, you tallied. No, your vote. Oh, you yeah. people voted yeah. for it. When I you didn't. It wasn't yeah. on Terry's list. But you put it quite high. I did put it very high. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. Uh, and I think that's what bumped it oh, up. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. Okay. A very English scandal at number six. At number five, what I would argue was the funniest comedy of the year. No, not The Good Place. I'm talking about Lisa McGee's Derry Girls which I thought was an absolute delight. And as an enemy of all things humorous and fun, that's saying quite something. Especially British. Is there any British... This is a British sitcom, effectively. That's it what is, it is. Yeah. And is there any other British sitcom you've ever liked about Forty Towers? That's my kryptonite. Uh, I liked Forty Towers, Red Dwarf and Blackadder, and that's basically where it begins and ends. Yeah. I mean, that is incredible that this show managed to win you round. Yeah. But it was a complete phenomenon. I mean absolute as soon as it arrived on channel 4 it was it, it was a word of mouth thing it was like it managed to have gags a ga- gags a minute but depicting this world of the 90s in the troubles in ireland these girls at their at their catholic school it just was a, absolutely brilliant achievement yeah yeah i think particularly uh, Saoirse monica jackson as erin in this lead with is is so funny in this her timing is absolutely impeccable uh, and she plays it just the right side just just below absurd yeah. you know, it's a very fine line to walk and they do walk it beautifully yeah they're all brilliant and Lisa McGee I mean what a what a, a writer what a talent to be able to write this is just in absolutely incredible and I am also similarly shocked that you like it so much James I know I loved it but actually Why? properly talk, talk us it just, I, I found it delightful I found it funny it was not the kind of humour that I find excruciating it wasn't so broad that I was snooty about it you yeah. know I found that it, it like it had a real sort of heart to it uh, it did have heart to it, yeah. Yeah, and that I think that really resonated with me. I thought this is, I mean, it just made me, on my morning commute, it just made me feel good about myself. Uh, you know, which is interesting yeah. for a show about the troubles. But, uh, you know. It's, and yeah. girls. <laughs> well, yes. No, really, really liked it. I think that's, uh, that's a good one. The Good Place, don't get me wrong, is is the other great comedy on at the moment, but this was not its best year, so it is not on this list. Uh, but I, I think this is uh, a, a worthy entry for the single sitcom that we have here. Oh yeah, it's good. Yeah. That's, that's that's true. Yeah, no, that's a spoiler. It's not got another period. four to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at number four, the other one on this list that is on my shows I missed, which is Patrick Melrose. Yes. Now, I this was definitely one of my highlights of the year. Cumberbatch never been better. The writing was insanely good. I mean, the tension between kind of the absurdity of him now this rich guy trying to you know blot out all of these this pain and shame through various drink and drugs i mean literally the man is kind of floating in money but he's also having to go down to very dodgy parts of manhattan and brooklyn in the 80s right boy mm. to, when it really was dodgy to score some of the scenes of drug taking are so kind of explicit and grim but also there's as as with patrick melrose there's this kind of absurdity and fantasy element at the same time because he's so rich mm. But some of the childhood scenes, I have to say, where he flashes back to, to trauma in his past are really, really difficult to watch. And actually what he plays really beautifully is that line between kind of posh, absurd, tough and, you know, kind of damaged guy, really. It's, it's, he plays it on a knife edge and just gets the tone right, gets the delivery right. Um, I absolutely loved it, but it, it is really, I found it really difficult to watch in places. It is really difficult. To, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a story about 
the trauma of child abuse and how that you know it that resonates and echoes through every single thing that happens in his life from that point onwards but i think what was incredible about it was each episode there were five episodes and each episode had a slight had a different tone and feel to it you know the first one which was the one with the drug taking in yeah. 80s new york was like a the blackest of comedies but it was comedic it was almost slapstick so it's based Um, on books right so a book an episode so and you did feel like you were getting a complete absolutely yeah there was one episode which was you know set at the party where princess margaret's there was like a social comedy um and that but the power of it i've never seen and there have been a lot of stories of the the, of how trauma affects human beings it's a thing that's dealt with you know in, in, in it's in the haunting of hill house for example mm-hmm. is, a, is, is about that to a large extent but the way this did it i just for some the way it was done it, you know images of that of this horrendous moment in his life where he's abused by his own father that kind of echo and the way it was edited and the way it was put together mm. it's an incredible example of storytelling what a job by david nichols david nichols yeah. adapted i've read the first two books in the series and they're hard they're difficult they're yeah. you know they're internal monologues and he somehow dramatized it it, I cannot imagine how anyone could have done it better. What a job he did on that, and, and, and Cumberbatch, of course, astonishing. So, yeah, I'm very, very happy that this is number four. I'm going to try and catch up with this over Christmas. And number three, a show we have all seen, based on Gillian Flynn's novel, It Is Sharp Objects. Of course, Terry hasn't seen the whole of it, but she will over Christmas, and it is very very good now where were you up to terry in, in the was it two or three it was two yeah which is exactly where i stopped like i watched two and was like this there has no. never been a snail that's moved more slowly than this show <laughs> um and again I, my worry with it was like because i was watching handmaids at the same time but when i was i thought this is more misery porn i was like no fuck off i'm not having any of this i'm done with being miserable on my commute go away um but actually once you get into it like it's so beautifully shot and I love the device to use where she has these constant flashbacks and they're all done without sound like like you have the the contemporary sort of sound of what's going on around her but you just see the visuals of the flashbacks and I love the fact that those flashbacks are used for very subtle yet poignant storytelling that traumatic things have happened and they're addressed in the flashback but they're actually not necessarily addressed properly in the story they're there just to give you character depth to give you texture to get you to understand the kind of psychology behind where she is now as opposed to where she was then and then of course among all this there's this sort of insular small town sort of abusive very sort of uh, you know introspective mentality the way everyone knows everyone's business and everyone's judging everyone and the way everyone is weaponizing passive aggression on a level I don't think I've ever seen before it's quite extraordinary um, and then the gradual unfolding of this mystery and then where it goes at the end is well quite a thing yeah I mean I think Weirdly, it's got a lot in common with, you know, it's another story of the effect of trauma on, on the main yeah. character um, and of, on a community as well. In this mm. show. And there's a lot, and this has been a year of fractured narrative. So this has a lot in common with The Cry, which is another show mm. probably underappreciated, I think. Well, I yeah. know we both love that show. And, and the, way, the way they're put together, these stories now, is incredibly sophisticated. So for me, there's a difference between this, The Cry, Sharp Objects, and Westworld. You see, for me, that these shows like The Cry and Sharp Objects particularly... Are, are use fractured narrative and flashbacks and mm. timelines and all of that in a very incredibly powerful way that's reflecting the fractured nature of the characters. For me, that's not what Wessel was doing. Wessel was doing something different. So I'm kind of, do you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm like, that. the way that had a fractured narrative was just irritating. That There was something beautiful about the way this, the narrative tricks and the editing of Sharp Objects. Mm. It was so 
it was like a sustained exploration of Amy Adams' character's mind. Yeah. Um, unrelenting. And the triumph, the coup of that last episode. I'm still, I know I'm going on about it. Every, <laughs> yeah. it I've already said it's one of my favourite scenes, but that whole conception is so clever. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. I love the, even before the, the, the famous, the montage that we're talking about, which is, you know, extraordinary in the closing credits, just the final scene of the reveal, yeah. I thought was brilliantly yeah. done. And the Abs- last line. The last line. <laughs> I just think, what a brilliant piece of, again, of adaptation of a, of a novel. Yes, and the adaptation thing is worth pointing out because it does deviate from the novel slightly, but all in very good ways right. when you're moving to television, especially the end of it. It fits in the sort of almost uh, nihilistic feel of the show much better because the novel's slightly neater in the way it ties things up, and I'm glad that the show isn't. Uh, but uh, yeah, very, very good. Definitely recommend people watch that. It's without doubt the most beautiful show of the year. Uh, and that is number three, Sharp Objects. And number two... The wonderful, the glorious, the radiant Killing Eve, <laughs> uh, which was a joy. And it took six months for this to find its oh, way to these shows. We waited for such a long yeah. time. The Americans were banging on about this at the beginning of the year, and we had to wait till much later to see it. But it was worth the wait. Terry, this was your... You loved this, didn't you? I did. Was this your show of the year? Um, yes, it was. Yeah. This was my show of the year. I just... You know, as a woman... I would say that sometimes you don't feel that there are truly accurate representations of what being a kind of modern, nuanced woman... There aren't, they aren't everywhere on telly, right? Um, and female characters often deal in tropes. I don't think it's perfect for anybody um, when it comes to representation, but I have to say this show nailed what being a woman's about and and obviously not everybody's the same and and villanelle is obviously a psychopathic uh, murderer um but i love that they drew such normal human women who one was a murderer and had problems with psychopathy and one is a member of um mi5 but between them they were both also just normal women with normal desires and wants and needs and juggling kind of big dramas and and domestic mundanity and it was written by a woman phoebe waller bridge as we know and that for me really showed you got women being written by women and it was the relatability for me me and the women i knew would be like laughing at stuff that it's just like oh my god i can totally relate to that i recognize that and that's that feeling of recognition doesn't happen every day but Everything else aside of that, it was fantastically written. The performances, the lead performances were remarkable. It was shot beautifully. The costumes, Villanelle's costumes particularly, were astonishing. It was just brilliant, beautiful television on pretty much every front. And the fact that it was BBC, I think, made me love it a little bit more. I think people are always so quick to talk about the kind of decline of linear tv and of um, traditional channels and all of that and i think the bbc worked really hard this year to to really kind of remind people what they do and what they do well and the kind of shows um that they support and that they are willing to show it linear and also put it all up at once that they can adapt to meet where the audience is but this for me is i think this will go down as 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 one of the shows of the decade 
Yeah, it's an absolute classic. It had me. Do you remember the opening? I remember the opening episode where the first scene was um, Jodie Comer shoving the ice cream in the little boy's face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Little girl. <laughs> little girl, right? Little girl, because little girl. she makes eye contact yes. with the male waiter and smiles at him. That's so right. she'd been smiling at Villa. I mean, this is, this is, oh, sorry, I'm just jumping in, but because this, this is exactly what the character works about. Is she sat there smiling at the little girl, trying to form a bond with this little girl before you know she's a psychopath? The little girl who's eating ice cream turns, looks at the male waiter and smiles at him and doesn't look at Villanelle anymore. Villanelle is like a typical woman, like always going for the guy, jealousy, all those weird conflicting emotions. And therefore, when she storms past the little girl, throws the ice cream in her lap to, to teach her a favour. That immediately <laughs> said she was a psychopath yes. without her slitting somebody's throat. But because she had that reaction of jealousy and being threatened by a yeah. little girl smiling at a waiter. And then the second scene was the establishment of their workplace of MI5. And it was like, and it set it, and they're, they're just, all, they're all hung over having gone out for someone's leaving do or something the night before. And it just established those characters to say, as an office, as an office workplace. It could have been anything. It could have been, you know, the Empire office yeah. or you know whatever the, a phone company or something it just happened to be they're all involved in spying and espionage and david Haig's character i meant to say this ages ago now in our favorite scenes thing spoiler alert his death oh my god that hit me that hit me hard mm. that scene in that nightclub where he's killed because i loved his character he's such a brilliant under underrated actor david Haig. he's fantastic in everything and he was such a lovable figure and so believable you believed that this guy would be in, in, in MI5 and yet was just a great a great guy and the fact that he he was killed I thought was so bold to, to, to kill off a really really lovable character that early on in the run was brilliant I agree entirely <laughs> loved this show loved it to bits it was a joy but not as much of a joy I thought as our number one show of the year which is, of course, Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House, the greatest show Netflix have yet produced, I would argue. Whoa. Yes, I, yeah, I wow. agree. Don't what, you agree? What would you say? But oh, yeah, It's Iron Fist, isn't it? No, no, no. I'm a huge fan of the OA. The OA is very, very good. It's no Haunting of Hill House, but the OA is fantastic, and mm. I can't wait for season two of that yep. next Do you year. really think the OA is better than Haunting so of Hill House? I've watched the OA six times. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> See, I had no idea yeah. that you were, you know, you a were such an well, OA OG. You've got your, our personal highlights of the year thing. My personal highlight by far was going on set of that show. That was really? one of the greatest days of my life. Thanks to you, you sent me. Wow. Thank you. It's all down to you. Yeah, I, I had um, no idea when yep. I sent you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, it's, it's very, very good. Sent me. But that's not the show we're here to talk about. I know. But <laughs> Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of Hill House was incredible. And to, um, to to take it from a kind of personal name droppy point of view. Oh, God. So yeah, I God. was lucky enough to interview Mike Flanagan for Pilot TV magazine. Your close personal friend, Mike Flanagan. No, just on the phone. But I was... So the thing was, I was... The, the way he talked about it, you know, you knew he knew this was a special thing. Yeah. You know, he'd, he'd made... He's a very successful director of horror films... Um, you know, he's directed, finished, just finished directing the sequel to The Shining, for God's sake. You know, he's a hugely respected director and writer of, in, in particularly in this genre. But even on top of that, he was like, this is, I do feel this is the best thing I've done. Mm. A 10-hour deep dive into horror of trauma and just the meticulousness of it, the ambition of the storytelling. Again, you know, to contrast it with Westworld, I, I'm, I'm stop, I'll stop going on about Westworld, but just, this was not multiple timelines for the sake of it this was an incredible way of depicting children and uh -huh. what they've gone through and then showing you what they're experiencing now as adults it was so brilliantly done on top of you know it was great from start to finish it was that thing where it was very it was quite difficult to start with to keep a track of who was who and all of that yeah, a lot of characters to deal with but once you got once you got it you're immersed in a phenomenal world 
that just enveloped you. It was like it was overwhelming. It was absolutely the hidden ghosts in every scene. The fact that it was it was doled out in such a point where you were not supposed to understand a lot of the references as you were exposed to them, but they gradually started to make sense as the series went on, where pieces fell into place and suddenly things from the first, the second, the third episode suddenly made sense because you saw it from another perspective. It was an absolute masterpiece of, of screenwriting. I thought it was genius. The performances were excellent. We've already talked about, you know, episode six being from a pure sort of filmmaking point mm. of view, from a from a from a production, from a process point of view, was an extraordinary achievement. And then the storytelling of the previous episode, the Bent Net Lady, is unbelievable as well. I would say uh I think the finale split some people. Yeah. Um, right. That might be why, you know, yeah. why you might say it's maybe May, that might be the only flaw. Yes, and I still don't. I'm still divided in myself. Yeah, as am I. I, I enjoyed <laughs> it and I liked it, and it didn't ruin the series for me. No. However, I there are things I would have done differently, yeah. uh, and I'm not sure that some of the choices in that final episode were ideal. Um, nevertheless, I don't think it takes away from the show. I think the show no. is a magnificent achievement, and I'd recommend absolutely anyone who either has Netflix or access to someone with <laughs> Netflix, make sure if you watch nothing else over Christmas, you absolutely watch all of The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, and I think I think horror's having a really interesting kind of moment, generally speaking, the same in film. Yes. I think it's such a genre that is ripe for imagination and innovation. And, you know, horror is a metaphor for so many things. Mm. I think where it intersects here with family and trauma, as you say, Boyd, is really interesting. Many respects are really traditional, but in many respects doing completely new things. Um, and, yeah, I'm planning to watch it again from the start mm. over Christmas yeah. as a treat to myself. Yeah, I've watched it twice, and the second time was extremely... Once you, cause one, you understand it more. There's a lot. There's so much to digest. There's so much going on in the haunting of Hill House in every single yeah. episode that once you've got, once you know what it all means, well, you think you do. There is, it's very, very rewarding to watch it again. And that, that the Ben that Lady episode, yeah, oh my yeah. god, Oliver Jackson Cohen, absolutely brilliant, incredible. I mean, everyone's great in it, they but he, him in that episode is so, was so powerful. There were so many other things I wanted to discuss, but we are running out of uh, time. So I will reel off a list of other shows which I thought were fantastic this year, filling in to throw in some of your own. Uh, Star Trek Discovery, which just about falls into 2018, even though it started in 2017. That was amazing. Uh, the Good Fight, which I thought was very, very good indeed. The Last Kingdom, I very much enjoyed. Daredevil Season 3 was a, was a very much a, a high point for Marvel this year. The Good Place, not the best year for the show, but certainly a good show nonetheless. Um, Marcella, loved a bit of Marcella. Another season of Marcella ending. I mean, it was fucking mental, wasn't it? The <laughs> yeah, end of that was really just it. nonsense, yeah. but I really yeah. liked it. I am fascinated to see where they go with that show now. Yeah. Uh, Little Drummer Girl was very good. Maniac, which I know Terry loved. Barry, which is loads and loads of fun. Assassination of Gianni Versace, The yes. Terror, Ozark Season 2, Sinner, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, the throughout, obviously Bodyguard we talked about. Better Call Saul, which is a show I'm not up to date with, but I am told is absolutely brilliant, so I must catch up with that. Homecoming, very, very good. Atlanta, very good. I don't watch animated shows, but both Big Mouth <laughs> and Bojack Horseman people were raving about this year. Uh, but you refused to watch them. I refused to watch them. Godless was fantastic. I really, really like that. That's a Netflix sort of almost mini-series uh, with Jeff Daniels. That was that was brilliant. Mm. Can yes. I give one shout-out to Smilf, which um, started in the US at the end of 2017. I think it arrived here at the beginning of 2000. 2018 um comedy starring written director and starring um a woman called frankie shorts about a single mother in south boston um very 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 funny <laughs> and i want to mention a few things that in any other year so inside number nine i mentioned it before the whole series was brilliant um the cry was great 
Uh, Kiri, which was very early in the year, um, was a really good Jack Thorne four-parter for Channel 4 in any other year. Unforgotten. Yes. Series 3. This yes. is one of the most undervalued. So I think. good. It's so good. It's so, it's so authentic and real Unforgotten. It's yeah. probably the most authentic depiction of how police really work. Mm. Very unshowy. No one's got a big eccentricity. They're all just normal people doing their jobs. It's a brilliant, brilliant show. <laughs> TV I love. Normal people doing their <laughs> jobs. Yeah, it's very important. All, now, I have to mention the two Sarah Phelps Agatha Christie adaptations this year, All Deal by Innocence, which was delayed from the previous Christmas due to cost, just issues with the cast was fantastic and ended up was shown in the spring absolute genius and we're going to review it we, we, we will have reviewed it in this podcast but um, the ABC Murders is a very late entry I think for one of the shows mm, of the year she is a genius and her Agatha Christie adaptations are one of the best things to happen to television for years and with that we draw both 2018 and this pilot podcast to a close. But fear not, for we will return triumphantly in the new year, not only with another barrage of weekly podcasts, but also some more issues of Pilot TV magazine, which will be appearing with copies of Empire several times over the next 12 months. Until such time, feel free to shoot the ship with us on social media at Pilot TV Mag and head over to iTunes and leave us all the stars you owe us for not having reviewed the podcast in 2018. Your homework over the next few days, whatever's left of this year, is to watch every episode of every show we've even mentioned today before January the 1st. Got that? Excellent. We'll be back in 2019, but until then, it's goodbye from Terry. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Boyd. Goodbye. And a very happy new year from me. See you on the flip side. Pilot out.